Tri-States, you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped, brought to you in part by Dupaco and the R.W. Hafer Foundation. This is Ken, back in my Friday reader seat. I've had a couple of weeks off moving down to Missouri, of all places, but I'm staying in touch with all of you in Dubuque. And so we are reading from the Friday, February 24th edition of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. And we begin with our first piece from Above the Fold. Iowans in danger of losing Medicaid. Local agencies are preparing for the end of a federal moratorium on removing people from Medicaid once they no longer qualify which could affect thousands of area residents. The last day of coverage under the moratorium is March 30th, about three years after Congress put it in place early in the COVID-19 pandemic. While most people enrolled in Medicaid will keep their coverage, those who previously would have lost their Medicaid coverage and those who have not re-enrolled recently will be dropped. State governments are taking steps to mitigate any confusion resulting from the moratorium's end. But they also have many more people on their Medicaid rolls, which has been costly for states. States are pretty eager to get back to normal and get to go through their eligibility process again and get back to a normal status, Iowa Department of Health and Human Services Director Kelly Garcia told an Iowa House of Representatives Appropriations Subcommittee this week. All of our enrollment numbers have grown quite a bit. She said Iowa had taken care to track the Medicaid recipients believed to no longer qualify for the program in an attempt to predict the fallout at the moratorium's end. According to department data, 7,394 people in five local counties are expected to no longer qualify as of April 1. 4,137 in Dubuque County, 942 in Jackson County, 711 in Clayton County, 669 in Delaware County, and 935 in Jones County. Statewide, Garcia said, 150,000 people are expected to become ineligible. Garcia said her team is working to notify those people. However, Garcia also said her department has lost track of some of the people expected to no longer qualify for Medicaid and has seen some of the notification letters return undelivered. Gary Collins, CEO of Crescent Community Health Center in Dubuque, said staff are anxious about their patients, most of whom currently receive Medicaid being caught unaware. With the phasing down of the expanded Medicaid protections, we are expecting an influx of people not covered or not knowing where their coverage stands, he said. We're doing our best to be prepared for that by being mindful and thoughtful in our communication. Unity Point Health Finley Hospital officials referred questions to the State Department of Health and Human Services. Mercy One Medical Center Dubuque did not respond to a request for comment. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services projects that 17% of Medicaid recipients nationally will lose coverage when the moratorium ends. The Illinois Department of Health Care and Family Services projects 380,000 people could lose Medicaid coverage statewide. 
A Wisconsin Department of Health Services webpage about the end of the moratorium does not include specific projections. But the agency reported 2,813 more people were receiving Medicaid in Grant County in December 2022 than February 2020, the month before the pandemic hit. In Lafayette County, 964 more were on the rolls. In Iowa, Collins said, Medicaid recipients at risk of losing coverage have another factor to contend with, as one-third of Medicaid recipients statewide are being moved to a new managed care organization. Iowa is in the process of adding Molina as a third private company contracted to manage government medical insurance in the state. Those things are happening kind of at the same time, Collins said. It is going to lead to some confusion with people receiving both notices at once. Along with the moratorium on disenrolling Medicaid recipients came increases in federal money to help cover the additional people receiving insurance. Garcia said that will phase out from a current 6.2% increase over normal levels to 1.5% by the end of the year before then ending. She said officials expect a shortfall of funding for Medicaid in the state by 2025. We've known that this 2025 shortfall is coming because we've been relying so much on the enhanced federal match throughout the public health emergency, she said. Garcia has filed a bill to create a tax on premiums paid to the state's private Medicaid and Medicare contractors, which could help make up for the phasing out of increased federal payments. We have a premium tax on all other insurers in the state, she said. At some point, we decided to not include Medicaid managed care organizations in that. We can leverage those funds to invest in the Medicaid program. Iowa Representative Chuck Eisenhart, Democrat, Dubuque, serves on the Appropriations Subcommittee and asked Garcia if she had investigated findings by State Auditor Rob Sand of illegal refusal of care by MCOs during the pandemic. If you could send me any findings or responses to that, I'm sure my constituents would be very interested, he said. Garcia said her department was not required to formally respond to Sands' findings, but continues to address any problems with MCOs internally. Iowa Representative Shannon Lundgren, Republican Piasta, serves on the Appropriations Subcommittee and said Thursday that she was content with the department's disenrollment plan, especially its follow-ups with Medicaid recipients when officials cannot initially reach them by mail. They aren't stopping with that. They're finding the new address or they're emailing, she said. Obviously, we don't want anyone to not have insurance or be surprised. Our next piece, all about the weather. Storm prompts virtual learning cancellations. For the third time in as many weeks, adverse winter weather prompted many area school districts to cancel or delay classes on Wednesday and Thursday, though some chose to use a temporary virtual option to keep students learning. Area superintendents said they largely based their decision of whether to hold virtual classes on the amount of advance warning they are able to give students and teachers while also considering the quality of remote instruction that students will receive. 
There are pros and cons to everything, but we think this is the best thing for our kids and our staff are able to do virtual instruction, at which we consider to be a high level, said Cuba City, Wisconsin School District Superintendent Aaron Olson. On Wednesday and Thursday, the vast majority of school districts in the Telegraph Herald's coverage area canceled classes. Four held classes remotely on Wednesday, while two districts did so on Thursday. In Iowa, a pandemic-era state law that allowed schools to temporarily transition to a hybrid or remote learning model expired in 2021. School district leaders still can choose to have students learn virtually, but those remote hours will not count toward the annual minimum instructional hours required by state law. Thus, Iowa school districts typically just cancel school on bad weather days. Illinois and Wisconsin, however, allow schools to hold classes virtually with some guidelines. East Dubuque, Illinois, School District Superintendent T.J. Potts said Illinois districts that file a virtual learning plan with their regional office of education can have up to five virtual learning days per school year. The East Dubuque District used its first two virtual learning days of the school year this week, having canceled and delayed school several times earlier this month. We really want kids in school and in person whenever possible. And that's why we did take a couple of cancellations these last couple weeks, Potts said. At this point, we would be adding days to the end of our school year. So in lieu of canceling, we pivoted to virtual days. He said the district was able to make that switch this week in part because there was no school on Monday due to President's Day. With the weather forecast predicting icy conditions for later in the week, administrators notified teachers to use Monday as a planning day in case virtual learning was needed, and staff sent home electronic devices and work packets with students on Tuesday. If we don't have any forewarning, it's hard to ask teachers to do that, and it's hard to ask students to do that as well if they don't have their materials or devices with them, Potts said. In Galena, students learned virtually on Wednesday but attended school in person after a two-hour delay Thursday. Superintendent Tim Vincent said the district has used three virtual learning days this school year with no cancellations. However, he said officials still are open to using traditional snow days if they are unable to give staff adequate time to prepare virtual lesson plans. The type of weather also matters. If we're deciding between a traditional snow day and an e-learning day, he said, if the weather is decent enough to where kids could be playing outside and making snowmen, that's a valuable experience for the kids as well. And I recognize that. It's not as if snow days are never going to happen again. Olson agreed that letting kids be kids on a snow day is important. Cuba City Schools implemented remote learning on both Wednesday and Thursday, following a district-wide policy of using virtual learning unless administrators are unable to notify staff in a timely manner. But we're not sending home nine hours of work to be done on a virtual day, he said. We just want to make it age-appropriate and continue learning. 
Southwestern Wisconsin School District in Hazel Green canceled classes on Wednesday and Thursday. Superintendent John Costello said administrators and board members have agreed to cancel school rather than pivot to virtual learning in the majority of cases, though it is an option from the state's Department of Public Instruction. We made the decision to not go virtual because we believe that it devalues education and the face-to-face learning that students receive and the face-to-face learning that the teachers give, he said. Later adding, one of my biggest concerns with virtual learning is what kids are doing and what stressors that puts on families at home when, say, a third grader needs to do their homework and mom and dad need to work. However, if the district faces additional inclement weather this year, it will need to start making up canceled days at the end of the year. So Costello said remote learning could be considered to avoid that outcome. Our third front page piece, A Life Remembered, Hazel Green Man Leaves Behind Laughs. Before Hazel Green resident Doug Blum died in December, he prepared a list on his phone full of advice for friends and family. The suggestions range from the practical to the emotional, and he even included a reminder of the furnace filter size, 20 by 25 by 1, so his wife, Mandy, wouldn't have any trouble changing it after he passed. Number two on his list was, don't be afraid to be silly, which makes total sense coming from him because he was just like a giant goofball, said Doug's son, Alvin Bloom. And then number five on it was, always make sure to have at least three close friends. Don't be a hermit. Doug died on December 27th, just months after a cancer diagnosis. He was 53. Doug was born July 15, 1969, in Pipestone, Minnesota, to Alvin and Linda Blum. The family moved to Dubuque when Doug was three, and he grew up in a home on Lincoln Avenue with his parents and older sister, Ramona, until the family moved to Galena when Doug was in high school. From a young age, Doug was a fan of comic books and practical jokes. He met his future wife in his 20s while working at the Dubuque Packing Company. Despite some of their opposite tastes, Mandy was more a country music gal while Doug was a hard rocker, the couple hit it off and were married July 22, 1995 in Mandy's hometown of Hazel Green. We had tornado warnings and thunderstorms and lots of rain that day, but it was a nice ceremony and a nice reception, Mandy recalled. We just kept it going, despite the weather. Around that time, Doug got into the restaurant business. That line of work took him and Mandy to Kansas in 1996, where the couple had their two sons, Vincent and Alvin, and later to Fort Dodge, Iowa, where their daughter, Rebecca, was born. The family moved to Hazel Green in 2005 when Doug left the restaurant business. He soon took up a job at Seincraft Screen Print in Galena, where he worked for more than 10 years. Doug was a family man, and he worked hard to ensure there was food on the table and toys available for the kids. He attended every high school sporting event he could, and he established special traditions with each of his kids. He took Rebecca out for father-daughter days where they would go bowling or drive to Galena for ice cream. 
Anytime a new superhero movie came out, he would be in line with Alvin on opening night with some heavily buttered popcorn. I remember he used to coach our little league team, and we were not good, said Doug's son, Vincent Blum. We were not good at all, but he made it fun. A lot of coaches nowadays, if their team was bad, there's some sort of punishment at practice. But if we lost, he'd be like, well, you guys did have fun, yeah? Then that's all that matters. When the kids aged out of the house, Doug embraced the renewed alone time with Mandy. The two would tackle home improvement projects, play cards, or watch a new movie. On his way to work, he would send each of his family members a quick good morning text to let them know he cared. He was never bothered by the empty nest syndrome, Mandy said. I was sometimes, but he just kept reminding me to be proud of the kids because they're out on their own and doing their own thing. In addition to his family, Doug enjoyed fishing, superhero movies, creepy clowns, and pranking friends. He was also a fan of refinishing furniture, and he wasn't afraid to pick up pieces that people put on the curb if he thought he could give them a second life. One of Doug's greatest joys, however, was his granddaughter, Clover, who was born in July. Despite typically being more reserved in public, he was prone to pulling up pictures of her on his phone to show off to anyone he could. Anytime we'd go out shopping, it'd be, Do you need anything for Clover? said Rebecca, Doug's daughter and Clover's mom. The one thing I wanted him to get her before he passed was her first bike for when she's older. And he was able to go out and get that before he died. Doug was diagnosed in August with stage 1 renal cell carcinoma in his left kidney and a carcinoma in his left lung the size of a softball. It wasn't his first run in with serious illness. At age 5, he had a serious case of mumps that left him deaf in one ear, and he was treated for Hodgkin's lymphoma as a senior in high school. Later in life, he was also diagnosed and treated for skin cancer. This time, however, the sarcoma in his lung was incurable, and his condition deteriorated rather quickly. Doug spent his final months surrounded by family. His kids, sister, and mom would visit frequently, and he would chat with them about life or share pieces of advice. It was during this time that the family made some surprising discoveries, such as the fact that the 4th of July was Doug's favorite holiday, despite long-running assumptions it was Halloween. When Doug died in December, he was surrounded by his loved ones. While it was hard to see him go through the illness and see the illness take him from us, those last few months were still beautiful because we each had our own time alone with him to talk or watch a movie, Mandy said. And then all of us were here for him when he died. Now we'll turn to some news from Dubuque and the Tri-States. And at the top of the fold for page two, we have Manchester Company faces $140,000 in fines. A Manchester plant faces more than $140,000 in fines after inspections last year found several safety violations, including following two incidents where employees lost fingers. The Iowa Occupational Safety and Health Administration citations against 
Strylon Manufacturing include a total of $142,964 in penalties. The company produces stored energy solutions such as battery technologies. Strylon Manufacturing is contesting the citations, according to Iowa Workforce Development officials, who provided the Telegraph Herald with copies of the citations this week. Officials with Strylon Manufacturing did not return requests for comment Thursday. The plant faces six citations stemming from inspections conducted in July and October, according to the citation documents. Several of the safety violations involved machines with unclear instructions of how to properly shut down the equipment, which could result in employees using a procedure that does not achieve an effective level of protection, according to the documents. Other safety violations refer to machines where gears, rollers, or other moving parts are not properly guarded, exposing employees to pinch point hazards or crush and amputation hazards. In two cases, the documents state, employees lost fingers while operating machines. The first incident occurred in July when an employee was attempting to rethread material on a machine. The machine started up with the employee's finger within the rollers, leading to an amputation of their right middle finger, documents state. In September, an employee using a different machine was adjusting a screw when a pivot arm came down on the employee's left middle finger, resulting in an amputation, according to the documents. Citations from both inspections note that Strylon Manufacturing previously was cited for violating an occupational safety and health standard relating to improper machine guarding, making these citations a repeat offense. The final order in the previous citation was affirmed in March 2020. Three of the six violations were required to be abated by Thursday, while two must be abated by April 6th and one was corrected during the inspection. Russell Perry, Iowa OSHA administrator, told the Telegraph Herald that once a business contests a citation, the case is passed to OSHA's legal staff, who work with the company's legal representation to reach a resolution. Sometimes the attorney will then come to me and say, the business is willing to do this or this to settle the case, he said. If that doesn't work, it could go to an administrative law judge here in Iowa and then through an administrative court proceeding. Power outages linger after ice storm. Icy weather Wednesday that stretched into Thursday downed tree branches and caused some power outages across the tri-state area. Most of the ice accumulation occurred in communities stretching from Independence, Iowa to Freeport, Freeport, Illinois, said National Weather Service Quad Cities meteorologist John Haas in a line roughly contiguous with U.S. 20. NSW received reports of a half inch of accumulation across that area, as well as a half inch of sleet in some communities. The NSW defines an ice storm as a quarter inch or more of ice accumulation. The added weight of the ice, combined with sometimes windy conditions, led to many branches snapping off in the area. Some of those branches hit power lines, causing pockets of outages in the tri-states area on Thursday. 
Dubuque County Emergency Management Director Tom Berger said there were no widespread outages in the county, but it's enough to keep everyone busy right now. Early Thursday, more than 300 Alliant Energy customers in Delaware County, Iowa, were without services, as were smaller numbers in several other area counties, according to the company's outage map. Many of those had their power restored by Thursday afternoon. The largest outage being reported in eastern Iowa as of that time was south of Cascade, where 120 customers were still without power. Alliance spokesperson Morgan Hawk said power would be restored to that area, as well as the Dyersville area, on Thursday, with power restored to all area Alliant customers by today. Berger said he had not received reports of significant crashes on US-20 or major thoroughfares. The salt seems to be working on the major roads, he said. Berger warned, however, that continued strong winds Thursday night could down more branches, again possibly impacting power lines. In northwest Illinois, communities including Warren, Apple River, Nora, and parts of Stockton still were without power as of Thursday afternoon. Warren Fire Chief Jeff Edge said his department had received reports from area residents of three to four power poles down. Phone lines also appeared to be down in the area. ComEd spokesperson Tom Dominguez said 66,000 of the company's customers remained without power Thursday afternoon, mostly in northwest Illinois, and the utility aimed to have 80% of customers' power restored by Thursday night, though customers in rural and tree-dense communities might have to wait until the weekend for power to be restored. He said the utility had brought in extra crews and was prioritizing restoring power to schools, police departments, and hospitals. And now we have an upbeat piece from Shellsburg. Shellsburg Cheddar, one of 20 finalists at U.S. Championship Cheese Contest. This is out of Green Bay. A cheese made in Shellsburg was one of 20 finalists during this year's U.S. Championship Cheese Contest, which wrapped up on Thursday. Raleigh Cheese Company's Raleigh House Select Cheddar was among the finalists out of the more than 2,200 entries in this year's contest. An aged Gouda named Europa, produced by Arathusa Farm Dairy of Bantam, Connecticut, garnered the highest score in the competition. Over the past two days in Green Bay, a team of 42 elite cheese judges have evaluated entries from 35 states based on their technical merits, including flavor, texture, appearance, and taste, states a press release. The Raleigh Cheddar was the only local cheese entry among the finalists, but nine nine of the 20 were from Wisconsin. Two finalists each hailed from New York, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, while one finalist each came from California, Connecticut, Idaho, Minnesota, and Vermont. This marks the second consecutive year where a Raleigh Shellsburg cheese was a finalist. Last year, it was a cheese with blue molding called Red Rock. The top three entries in 118 cheese categories also were honored during the contest.
The local entries to finish in the top three included Sharp Cheddar, aged six months to one year, Second, Foremost Farms USA, Lancaster. Traditional Waxed Cheddar, Mild to Medium, Best of Class, Raleigh Cheese Company, Shellsburg. Havarte, Second, Meister Cheese, Muscoda. Gorgonzola, Third, Hooks Cheese Company, Mineral Point. Brie and Camerbert, Best of Class and Third, Two Entries, Lactalis, USA, Belmont, Belmont. Latin American style melting cheeses, best of class, Mexican cheese producers, Darlington. Cream cheese, third, Prairie Farms, cheese division, Luana, Iowa. Open class, grated cheeses, best of class, Mexican cheese producers, Darlington. Another little piece, Stonehill Communities CEO to retire in August. The president and CEO of Stonehill Communities has announced her retirement. Gretchen Brown will retire from her role effective August 10th, according to a press release. Her retirement comes after eight years of service. During her tenure, Stonehill has seen continual strategic growth, including a number of capital projects, including the renovation of the health center, resident care areas, and chapel, expansion of Assisi Village to include assisted living living memory care, and the new administrative outreach building, which houses the Caregiver Resource Center, the release states. Brown will continue to be part of Stonehill following her retirement to help with the CEO transition, the release states. The Stonehill Board of Directors has started a search for a successor. And one other small piece, Asbury plans council in the community meetings from Asbury. The city budget will be the topic of the inaugural council in the community meeting hosted by Asbury City Council members. The meeting will be held at 11 a.m. Tuesday, February 28th at City Hall. A press release states that the meeting is intended to foster two-way communication and allow citizens to discuss issues and concerns specific to their neighborhoods. City officials and staff will use the meetings to collect residents' feedback. The meetings will be held at 6 p.m. on the second Tuesday of each month prior to city council meetings and at 11 a.m. on the fourth Tuesday of each month. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicap. This is Ken, and we are reading from the Telegraph Herald for Friday, February 24th. And we now will turn to today's obituaries. Richard Tiggis, Cheryl. Richard Tiggis, 80, of Cheryl, died Thursday, February 23rd. Visitation will be held from 3 to 7 p.m. Sunday, February 26th at Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home, 3860 Asbury Road, from 9 to 9.45 a.m. Monday, February 27th at St. Paul Lutheran Church, where services will follow at 10 a.m. Burial will take place in Linwood Cemetery. Stella F. Hafel, North Buena Vista. Stella F. Hafel, 93, of North Buena Vista, died Wednesday, February 22nd. 
Visitation will be held from 1 to 6 p.m. Sunday, February 26th at Bear Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street, and from 9 to 11 a.m. Monday, February 27th at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in North Buena Vista, where services will follow. Burial will be in the church cemetery. Philip W. Larson Philip W. Larson, 81, of Dubuque, died Wednesday, February 22nd. Services will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, March 4th, at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, Eaglehoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory, 2659 John F. Kennedy Road, is assisting the family. Margaret J. Sam, Galena. Margaret J. Sam, 74, of Galena, died Wednesday, February 22nd. Services will be held at 11 a.m. Monday, February 27th at St. Michael's Catholic Church in Galena. Furlong Funeral Chapel of Galena is assisting the family. Ronald P. Brady, Epworth, Iowa. Ronald P. Brady, 71, of Epworth, died Wednesday, February 22nd. Visitation will be held from 3 to 8 p.m. Sunday, February 26th at Rife Funeral Home in Epworth, where services will take place at 11 a.m. Monday, February 27th. Rita Glasgow, Galena. Rita Glasgow, 89, of Galena, died Wednesday, February 22nd. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, February 28th, at Furlong Funeral Chapel in Galena. With the sadness of the passings comes the joy of the new births. And we have several to report. Starting with Tuesday, February 21st, Calloway Vosberg. Mike Calloway and Amber Vosberg of Dubuque, a girl at Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center. Wednesday, February 22nd, Anderson Welter, Blake Anderson and Tanya Welter of Dubuque, a girl at Mercy One. Rees, Alex and Nikki Rees of Cascade, a boy at Mercy One. Waterman, Brock and Becky Waterman of Cheryl, a boy at Mercy One. Thursday, February 23rd, Goldsmith, Noah and Kelly Goldsmith of Earlville, a girl at Mercy One. Welcome aboard, little ones, and may your life be filled with joys and all those around you loving you. As I was going back to other pages for news, I happened upon this large picture of a young man, a very stern look on his face, very intent look on his face, with his guitar uh, playing into uh, some microphones and such, and beneath it is this caption. Um, it reads, uh, Dubuque guitarist Marcus DeJesus will perform a pair of concerts this weekend in preparation for his appearance at Festival International de Viola de Espirito Santo in Brazil. The concerts will be held at Clark University and Galena Center for the Arts. I thought this might be a nice personal piece to take a look at. So let me read this one for us. And it's titled, Practice Meets Opportunity. This is one of our own from Dubuque. Every weekday morning, 
Marcos de Jesus rises at 4 a.m. while wife Britt and son Vinny continue their slumber nearby. He quietly ventures into his music studio located within his Dubuque home and picks up his prized possession, a six-string acoustic guitar crafted in 2003 by the late Sergio Abro. It's number 488 out of less than 800 the famed Luthier made in the past 40 years. String by string, he gently begins waking the instrument, plucking strings, adjusting knobs, and bringing it in tune. He pulls up a log on his laptop, charting a detailed outline of every piece of music he's been practicing, what he's been practicing, how he's been practicing, and what he needs to drill to keep his fingers agile between classical, jazz, blues, rock, and improvisation that he's frequently called to play. For the next two hours, his fingers dance along the fretboard each day of the week, focusing on a different element of his practice regimen. Then he sets off to work in Madison, Wisconsin, where he teaches elementary music full-time. A brief break in the day finds him again picking up his instrument. Then in the evening, after returning to Dubuque, he's practicing for another two hours. His routine is one he adopted as a music student at Clark University before graduating in 2014 and pursuing his master's degree at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. He eventually settled back in Dubuque, where he also teaches music at Clark University and Loris College, as well as maintains approximately 12 private guitar students through his home studio. It might seem tedious, DeJesus said of his dedication practicing, dedicated practicing that accompanies his busy schedule as a musician, teacher, father, and husband. But there comes a time after college when you're not in that educational environment anymore. And as a teacher, where you're more focused on the progress of your students, it can be easy to lose your momentum and your growth as a musician. You have to find ways to continue to challenge yourself. At 31, his hard work is paying off. Jesus will be among a roster of eight elite classical guitarists from across the globe who have been selected to perform as part of a biannual international classical guitar festival titled Festival Internacional de Violeo do Espírito Santo, also known simply as Fives, F-I-V-E-S. It will take place from March 28th through the 31st in Vitoria, Brazil, and will include concerts, master classes, lectures, and a contest for emerging classical guitarists. Jesus originally is from Brazil. He moved to Dubuque with his family as a child. He began his guitar studies at age 10 with his father as one of his first teachers. He graduated from Dubuque Hempstead High School and from college to his professional career has continued to contribute to the tri-state community through guitar. He has appeared as a soloist with the Dubuque Symphony Orchestra and the Southern Illinois Symphony. In addition to performing in a variety of jazz ensembles, including the Larry Bush Big Band, Hunter Firsty and his American Vintage Orchestra, and the Mistletones, in addition, Jesus also performed with his group, the Blue Flame Duo. 
As a student and emerging professional guitarist, Jesu previously collaborated with the festival's coordinator, Marasi Texiria Natro, who invited Jesus to appear for this year's event as a performer, lecturer, and contest judge. Jesus will play the selections he plans to perform for the festival in a pair of upcoming local concerts. The first will take place at 7.30 p.m. Saturday, February 25th, in Janssen Music Hall on the Clark University campus. The second will be at 3 p.m. Sunday, February 26th, at the Galena, Illinois Center for the Arts. The repertoire will showcase works by composers from the United States, Brazil, Germany, Paraguay, Russia, and Spain. The festival was established four years ago as a way to highlight the art of classical guitar and the international performers keeping it at the forefront. It also provides an opportunity for up-and-coming talent to further their studies by learning from those performers firsthand. At this level, you're playing with the big boys, said Jesus, who will appear in the festival alongside his longtime classical guitar idol, Fabio Zanon. It's exciting and a bit nerve-wracking, but it's a chance for me to be a part of a celebration of classical guitar and of the music composed for classical guitar. With his dedicated practice and commitment as an educator, Jesus also is authoring a book about developing a practice technique to help other performers hone their skills. At this point in my life, I know what repertoire suits me well, and I'm excited to showcase that and to continue growing, he said. But I'm also excited to be in a position to help develop younger musicians. That's why I wanted to stay in this area. It has given me a way and an opportunity to be able to do that first. Wow. If any of you can get out to see those performances, it's something I think would be worth the time to listen to. We have a little bit of news in brief next. Police. Dubuque man assaulted wife threatened to hit baby. Police said a Dubuque man assaulted his wife and threatened to hit their baby last month. Tyler J. Sternhagen, 32, of 2284 Jackson, was arrested at 12.57 a.m. Thursday at his residence on warrants charging two counts of child endangerment and one count of third or subsequent offense domestic assault, as well as four counts of probation violation. Court documents state that police responded to Sternhagen's residence on January 29th. Sternhagen's wife said he started yelling at her in front of their two-year-old child. At one point, Sternhagen had gotten so angry that he ripped a baby gate out of the wall and threw it toward his wife, documents state. Sternhagen then picked up their 10-month-old child and threatened to hit the baby, documents state. Sternhagen's wife was able to take the baby from her husband and decided to leave with their children. As his wife tried to leave, Sternhagen cornered her in the kitchen and yelled at her. The woman then was able to leave. The incident was captured on at-home security camera footage, documents state. Police were not able to contact Sternhagen upon receiving the report of the assault, documents state. A warrant for his arrest was issued January 30th. Galena woman accused of stealing at least $10,000 from title company. A Galena woman recently was indicted on charges of stealing more than $10,000 from a title company. 
Teresa M. Burke, 40, of Galena, is charged in Joe Davies County Circuit Court with two felony counts of theft. A grand jury indictment on the charges was filed earlier this month. Burke's first court hearing is set for Thursday, March 2nd, and a summons that has been filed for Burke to appear in court. The indictment states that Burke knowingly exerted unauthorized control over property from Security First Title Company. The company's corporate office is located in Freeport, but there is also an office in Galena. Documents state that one of the theft charges involves the loss of more than $10,000, but less than $100,000. The other theft charge involves the loss of more than $500, but less than $10,000. Few other details were included in the indictment. Galena Police Chief Eric Hafel said in an email to the Telegraph Herald that no other details are being released, noting it is an ongoing investigation. Staff at the Galena Office of Security First Title Company referred questions to the corporate office. A message left at that office was not returned. We do not have our usual Friday uh, opinion piece from the Telegraph Herald uh, um, editors, but we do have a piece that looks interesting, and we have some time, so let me share this one. It, it's it's from um, Siegfried Sutterland, who is a retired faculty member from the Indian Hills Community College in Ottumwa. And the piece, is, it's under other view, so it's a personal piece, uh, entitled Female Civility versus Male Brutality. Nothing is more historically obvious, self-evident, and relentlessly never-ending as male criminality ranging from domestic abuses to uncountable gun deaths to wars and genocide. It is beyond imagination to visualize masses of females acting like warring men and engaging in trying to kill other females on a massive scale. Statistics around the globe overwhelmingly prove constantly and shockingly that about 95% of violent crimes are carried on by males. Unfortunately, it is also shocking that this has never been sufficiently addressed to diminish its gargantuan scale. Though plenty of attempts have been tried, none really left a permanent dent in this global dystopia dystopian catastrophe. Testosterone-poisoned behavior continues on a massive worldwide scale. In sharp and decisive contrast, females who bear the brunt of male mischief have spawned historically and continuously admirable efforts to alleviate the horrors imposed by males, especially during war times. Florence Nightingale, initiated a comprehensive nursing policy to mitigate the bloodletting suffering of males caused by males during the Crimean War of the 1850s. Instead of jubilating victory, as most victorious males do, without being unaware that victories tend to be illusions. See Thomas Fleming's The Illusion of Victory. Her policy alleviated the suffering of uncounted wounded soldiers. It was a classical example of the nurturing nature of females, neutralizing somewhat the burdens which males heaped upon males. Continuing the female nurturing pattern, Clara Barton, also a nurse who witnessed the male-caused bloodletting of the Civil War, saw to it that the Red Cross 
was imported from Geneva to the U.S. to enact a similar admirable nurturing policy to the wounded as Nightingale had done. The humanitarian work of these women was given a long-lasting and crucial global impact by another female, Bertha von Suttner. She was an Austrian who published in 1889 an anti-war book titled Lay Down Your Arms, which contributed in a major way to the modern disarmament movement. On top of that, she was the one who induced the Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel, who whose hundreds of discoveries and patents ironically included dynamite, to establish, among others, the Nobel Peace Prize. It's no surprise that the first female elected to Congress in 1917, Jeanette Rankin, strongly objected to our entry into World War I. Her pacifism lasted throughout her life, and she criticized our entry into World War II and was still demonstrating against the Vietnam War at an advanced age. During the Iraq War of 2003, Cindy Sheehan became an early and relentless and solitary anti-war activist after her son died in that war. She took her pacifism in a personal and lonely way to various venues from Texas to D.C. Beyond these prominent females, there are large numbers of female organizations, many started by mothers, who are very active across the nation trying to solve male violence. Unfortunately, the actions of these courageous and morally inspired women has only limited results and no major long-term impact on reducing male violence. That raises the question, what is the solution that would ensure some significant results of their commendable objective of reducing male violence? Perhaps the answer resides in having a self-sustaining penal colony for those males whose culpability of shockingly serious crimes and violence and warring is beyond a shadow of a doubt. Penal colonies have existed now and then in history. Beyond this, it is axiomatically necessary to pass and enact laws which specifically address and focus on male crimes. The law-abiding children, females, wives, mothers, and males who all suffer from male violence deserve to have finally some abatement, some permanent reduction of male brutalities. They should form a national movement to evoke appropriate actions. Wow, that's something to think about. On our editorial page, we do have one letter to the editor. Students need better geography background. Carter Hayden, North Wellington Lane, Dubuque. The state of Iowa needs to start teaching geography in elementary and middle schools. Geography should be reworked to teach modern world geopolitical issues. Iowa has a standard under the core standards in social studies, which only recommends teaching geography for two years in high school. However, geography courses are taught in European countries in elementary, middle, and high school. A potential solution could be to stop teaching Iowa students to memorize geography and discover the significance of geography in a modern world sense. Therefore, reworking geography to include geopolitical issues in elementary and middle school. 
It's important to have an education in geopolitics because as a society, we are more open to geopolitical issues in our modern world than ever before because of access to the internet. Geography isn't just learning about countries located on a map. It's learning about countries, societies, and cultures as a whole. I would agree with that. Well, now that takes us to our weekend buzz. The noteworthy things to do this weekend in the Dubuqueland area. Starting at the top, we have Dubuque on Ice Brewfest. Saturday, Grand River Center, 500 Bell Street. VIP entrance from noon to 4 p.m. General admission from 1 to 4 p.m. The 11th annual festival will feature local beer and liquor, wine, cheese, sausages, chocolates, and more. All proceeds will support the National Brewery Museum, Camp Albrecht Acres, and Research for the Kids. Must be 21 and older to enter, including designated drivers. Bring a valid ID. Admission, $59 for VIP, $44 for general admission, $15 for designated drivers. More information, DubuqueBrewFest.com. 54th Annual Rod and Custom Car Show, Saturday and Sunday, Monticello, Bernadez Center, 766 North Maple Street in Monticello. 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Saturday, 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. Sunday. Street rods, custom cars, race cars, motorcycles, and pickup trucks will be on display. Admission, $10 for adults, $5 for children 12 and younger, or free for children with a paid adult admission. A $1 discount will be applied for attendees who bring a carried food donation for Four Oaks. For more information, rodandcustomcarshow.com. Black As You Are, Art and Poetry Slam, Saturday and Sunday. The Spot Nutrition, 356 Main Street, 6 to 10 p.m. Saturday and Sunday. Work by Dubuque and Davenport artists will be displayed and performed. Admission is free. Cody Jinks. Saturday, Five Flags Center, 405 Main Street. The Outlaw Country Music Star performs for the third time at Five Flags with special guests, the Steel Woods and Aaron Viacourt. Jinx has released nine critically acclaimed albums, four of which have reached the top five on Billboard's Country Albums chart. Admission, 35 to $250. Tickets and more information, fiveflagcenter.com. Com. Pollinators, what's the buzz? Sunday, Mines of Spain, 8991 Bellevue Heights Road. Noon, Felicia Chandler joins the winter program series to discuss pollinators and how the community can best support them. Admission is free. For more information, 563-556-0621. You have been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. This is Ken, finally back in my comfortable reader seat, but down in Missouri now. But I'll be staying in touch as long as I am able. And I've been reading from the Friday, February 24th edition of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. 
Always remember, you get a lot more than just melodious voices like mine reading the newspaper from Iris. There are many, 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 many more programs out there. So look into it, contact Iris, and see what else you might find out there of interest for your listening pleasure. Until next week, stay warm. I know it's a lot colder up where you're at, and stay safe. It's been kind of icy out there. So take care until you hear from me next week. So long.